This podcast was researched and compiled on Ngunnawal and Ngambri country. We'd like to pay our respects to the elders and custodians of this land where sovereignty was never ceded, always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Welcome to Your Brain on Writing, the podcast where we unpack the experience of reading and writing and try to understand what it does to our brains. I'm Professor Inga Mewburn and I produce this podcast with Associate Professor Paul McGee. Paul and I write books and teach writing and we share a fascination with the way words on a page can become images in our minds or ideas in our hearts. We produce this podcast series with undergraduate student interns from the Centre for Public Awareness of Science at the Australian National University. This episode is about what makes writing boring, specifically what makes academic writing so boring. This episode was researched and narrated by Tara South and contains interview segments from Paul and myself. We hope you enjoy it. Imagine this. You've got some research you have to do for an assignment or project, and since this is university-level stuff, you need to dig into proper academic papers. You spend an hour scanning for pages of jargon for something relevant. Despite your best intentions, your train of thought keeps sliding back to what you want to do after you've finished your work here. To settle down and read a good book. Why do we loathe reading academic work? but leap at the chance to read a work of fiction. In many ways, the two tasks are very similar. Taking words on a page and constructing them into ideas in your mind. Yet in one context, it's famously boring, and in another, it's a common pastime. This begs the question, why is academic writing so famously dull? To understand why academic writing is so unappealing, we must consider why anything at all is boring. Remarkably. This is a relatively unexplored field of psychology, despite how prevalent the feeling is. However, there has been some research into its opposite, interest. The crucial part of something generating interest is building a connection with the observer. Researchers identified five factors that can build this connection. Novelty, complexity, uncertainty, conflict, and utility. It's worth noting that this is a delicate balancing act. Too much of any of these factors can, in fact, prevent a connection. After all, haven't you been driven off by something so complex it just goes straight over your head? Haven't you found some obscure literature that was so alien you simply couldn't get invested? To use a time-worn adage, it's a matter of finding that balance. But what is novel? What is complex? Ask two different people and you'll get two different answers. There's the crux of the issue. What's interesting, or boring, is largely subjective. We've all listened to a friend go on and on about something we just can't connect with, or been baffled when a friend just can't muster the same enthusiasm about a subject that we could. It's painfully dull to one person could be utterly fascinating to another. So can we really say that academic writing is inherently boring? Maybe we can't. Maybe it's simply a placebo, because everyone expects it to be boring, 
we feel bored when we read these papers. But this raises the question, where did this expectation of boredom come from? Was it just some fluke, or is there actually some basis behind it? I interviewed Inga Mewburn and Paul McGee for their perspective on academic writing. Inga Mewburn is the Director of Research and Development at ANU and co-host of these podcasts. So the first rule is to get it published. So it's written for a particular audience, and that audience is an audience of expert readers. So the important thing to realise about academic papers is we write them for each other. We don't write them for the general public. We don't even write them for students. And so that means that we assume there's a level of knowledge um, from the person reading it already. And sometimes that's really hard to judge because sometimes we write things that are across disciplines or between disciplines. What if there is something about academic writing that is inherently less interesting than its fictional counterparts? Maybe cultures are part of it, but can we discount the structure of academic writing? What if something about that structure was inherently inhospitable to the kind of connections required to make something interesting? Sometimes they're stupid, Tara. Like, and sometimes they're just custom and sometimes they're useful that they help us understand each other. And I think what's really confusing to people looking at academic writing is that there seems to be these multi, multiple conflicting sets of rules and that they don't really make sense without a history. Most academic writing, by convention, has a very specific tone that differs from ones used in casual life or in entertainment. I hate it. Every time I go to write an academic paper, I'm writing in a kind of register or a language that I don't like to read, and therefore I've got to sit with that language in my head and I don't like it. I don't like speaking it, I don't like doing it. I do it purely pragmatically. this, there is the age-old enemy of society, bureaucracy. I was dealing this morning with the people who are in charge of the side of the bureaucracy who collect the statistics for which you will be punished if you don't meet certain thresholds. You, you know, there is a way nowadays in which you have to produce so much product and it's actually totally indifferent what the content is. Complex institution um, that involves an organisation of human beings will be full of totally nut stuff, like, like things that lead to rampant inefficiency and, and utter craziness to the point where, yeah, scholars are told not to um, be productive because that would be unproductive according to a particular scale of measurement. So that is how academic papers are written and read. Which brings us to my core question. Could there be something about the structure of academic papers that is fundamentally boring? Consider the idea of conflict. We humans love to see a good struggle and how it turns out, but what's the conflict when you're reading a paper about the tendencies of a particular species of crab? What's the conflict? and you're reading a paper about the evolution of a term I in philosophical discourse in Europe over centuries. This isn't the only avenue of engagement discouraged by an academic style of writing. Mystery and uncertainty are famously engaging, but a major rule of academic writing 
is that you should be able to understand what a paragraph's about for first sentence alone. To quote an academic cliche, you're not writing a murder mystery. Academic writing can fall into the other side of the Goldilocks zone, too. The skill levels of academics vary wildly, and people with unparalleled expertise in one area might find themselves lacking in even closely related subjects. Papers are written for people who know what the paper's on about, but it could be easily needed by people in a field just different enough to not fully understand it, making it too complicated to become interesting. So the problem with interdisciplinary writing is you're writing in two different dialects that make sense within themselves. So when you've got two disciplines, they can often um, sound like gibberish. It does help when people have a really open mind, what we call in the trade epistemic fluency. And by that, we mean that they're able to comprehend different ways that knowledge is made and what counts as knowledge. And so I'm very lucky to work with a computer scientist who is also a mathematician and a natural language processing person because she's been dealing with linguistics for so many years as a mathematician. She's very open-minded about what counts as knowledge and knowing. And she is an excellent translator. I can't explain her concepts to non-computer scientists, but she can explain my concepts to computer scientists. So I'll say, blah, 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 blah. And they'll all look, the whole team will look at me blankly. And then she'll turn to them and she'll say something like completely mathematical, like higher dimension, vector space, blah, like literally like that. And, and, and they'll go, oh, right. And we have terrible trouble getting published. It's not because our work is not interesting. People are fascinated by it. It's just that we give it to a journal. They're like, oh, this is too mathy and too computer sciencey. And then we give it to a computer science journal and they're like, this is just application in a particular domain. This isn't computer science. So um, so you, although you can within teams get people who can perform this translation um, in terms of actually publishing it, that's why new journals sort of arise in the cracks between fields. So one that I've watched with interest over the last 10 years is um, the cross between archaeology and earth science that happens at ANU. So there's people mm-hmm. who study, you know, the rocks and the artefacts that they discover at archaeological sites, but they use techniques, scientific techniques from rock science, you know, sequencing of isotopes and things like that to understand the history of an object or what it was made of or where it came from. Talked a lot about factors that can make academic writing seem boring, ranging from our own expectations, the specific nature of a language, the difficulty many readers have in finding conflict or mystery in it. We have seen that academics themselves can find it hard to be interested in work that is not specifically in their field. But is it possible to resolve these problems with the conventions? Is it possible to make academic papers that can be read easily by a novice or inspire excitement? I asked Inger and Paul if they thought academic papers could be made more interesting while still being useful, and they said this. Mm. Yeah, good question. Oh, gosh, such a good question. To an extent. Mm. I think that a lot of the boringness in them is actually necessary and unavoidable, um, and it gets back to the the rules about Um, attaching your work to other work and being a scholar as opposed to someone writing an opinion piece, right? 
So so that kind of laying out of evidence, that kind of shoring up of a statement, a knowledge claim, if that's not done properly, um, it's not academic and therefore it's not an academic paper, it's something else. And that's okay, like maybe you are writing something else, but if you set out to write an academic paper, I think there's a level of boringness, of sort of the eating dry toast kind of boringness that you can't avoid. I think what you can do, though, is if you can get flow and coherence um, and you can move your reader from one idea to another and you can do that, I often feel, with the minimum amount of words necessary to do that, that I think that's elegant. And so when I see that done well, that's what I try and emulate. A lot of people don't think it's like less words that make a good academic paper good. They like it to be wordy. And to some extent this is a matter of taste, but I like um, language that is sort of parsimonious and just does what it has to do and gets out of the way. Helen Sword, she's written a few books. One of them is Stylish Academic Writing, and she talks about how writers should use things like metaphors and analogies more and how they're afraid to, and that a metaphor and analogy can be a way into an abstract concept that grounds it concretely, things you can see, hear, smell, touch and taste. And so you can relate really complex things through a metaphor and analogy. For me, in terms of how to make the thing better, I would want more attention at the sentence level. What I see more and more as I progress through my career and supervise more students is that if I address their work at the level of the sentence and insist on clarity and point to any phrases that seem to be fudging over the connections just because the grammar's a little bit fudgy or, or anything like that, often I can get at the large problems in the thinking through that micro-level sloppiness. I haven't yet mentioned the fifth factor, utility. Anything is more interesting and memorable if it is useful. So is academic writing fundamentally not useful? Of course not. But the use for a lot of research isn't immediately apparent and a given piece of research might not be immediately be useful for everyone. This problem is magnified when you consider academia has a reputation of being elitist, discussing matters far removed from everyday life. While this isn't true, can we expect any random passerby on the street to appreciate the usefulness of a paper on the speed of zeroing of different kinds of computer chips? I asked Kinger and Paul if they remembered any particular papers that had an impact, and they said this. It's by Charles Goodwin, who's an anthropologist, and it's called Professional Vision. And it's just about ways of seeing things. So, in fact, in that paper, he talks about academic writing and the practices of writing on the sides of books and um, highlighting bits of text as a form of professional vision, that professionals develop a way of seeing something and they see it in a particular kind of analytical way, which enables them to do things. So, police see things differently to academics who see things differently to surgeons who see and we all pay attention to different parts and and everyone thinking to myself why this paper right why did this one come to mind because when I discovered it it was during my PhD which was about hand gestures in architecture classrooms so it was all about watching people work and thinking about how they worked and observing them work I discovered this paper at the same time I was having a whole bundle of really unconnected thoughts about things that I'd noticed and I couldn't make them cohere. And then I read this paper, I'm like, that's it, that's why. 
And and the rest of my thesis was like a breeze after that. So I've gone back and just had a look at the first couple of pages and gone, it's just an ordinary academic paper, actually. There's nothing particularly special about it. So there's almost something sentimental for me because this paper was like a like you're climbing a set of stairways and and you've got a couple of steps missing and you look at that step up the top which is your PhD finished and you think there's steps missing now um how am I going to get there and then someone brings a paper and it just sort of puts the steps in and you're like and suddenly you're there so I think it's for me it's it's quite um it was sort of a breakthrough moment um and the paper itself is particularly well written um, I think still it's very conversational. It sort of tackles a very big problem with a lot of diffuse bits of data and it makes really startling novel kind of suggestions. Um, academics are all about novelty and originality and something that it's a very creative profession, so you really appreciate it. I, I too had a paper that came immediately to mind when I saw that question. It, it came to mind, you know, 40 minutes ago when I first looked at the question. Mm, mm. Um and it was a paper from the late 60s called The Logic of Non-Standard English by William Lebov, who is a um, sociolinguist. And, well, I mean, to, to give a brief idea of its content, um, th- this is a time at which many, many academics and people with various forms of power, politicians as well, were suggesting that African Americans seemed to have some genetic deficiency whereby they couldn't speak properly and, that, you know, there were ideas floating around but that maybe they could never actually learn proper English and therefore, as a consequence, maybe money shouldn't be poured into all these inner-city education programs, you, you know, and, and so forth. Um, I, I mean... Yeah, ghastly stuff, but really widespread and really powerful and actually continuing in in that, you know, kind of power today. There's all sorts of versions of it. And what Lebov does in that piece is he analyses a whole lot of transcripts of African-American English that he's collected in in various locations. Um, but usually the way he's collected them is he's he's had black academics go into those communities and actually catch people speaking naturally rather than speaking in a situation where there's a person in authority who happens to be white, which might put them offside. And then he compares a whole lot of transcripts of um, of whites speaking in conversational contexts as well, including university contexts. And, and what he shows is on the one hand that, there's a logic in African-American English that's just as powerful as any other logic the moment you can see past your prejudices about certain forms of speech. And on the other hand, when you look at white intellectual English, there is tonnes of waffle, there's tonnes of circumlocution and so forth. You know, I'm performing it now even to try to fill out those categories. So it's just this devastating kind of attack on this idea that this particular group of people are in any way linguistically deficient, done comparatively, done with compelling evidence, evidence after evidence after evidence. Um, But what really gets me about this paper is this sense of articulate rage that comes through it. You you know, it's, it's someone who is so angry about the politics of this situation, but the way that anger is conveyed is not through... Um, 
it's not through any sort of cheap political railing. It's through using the rules that are available, using the mechanisms and making a point utterly compelling to, to the point where, you know, it changes minds. <laughs> Extraordinary stuff. Makes me a little bit emotional even just, you, you know, speaking about it. Utility. It's an interesting question because being able to do with it. Um, it's interesting when you talk when you hear about how academia's talked about um, conventionally in our culture. It's like an ivory tower, and in fact, th- it, that's academic is a dismissive way of talking about someone's objections to something. Like that, we do useless stuff. That we do stuff that only matters to each other. That it doesn't have direct and um, a direct application to life and the world. Like if you listen to politicians talk about academia, it's often framed in that way. But I think what academics value is it is sort of knowledge utility, like what what either gives you a tool or a thought or an idea that gives you some purchase that enables you to move a conversation along or move opinion along or move, you know, knowledge along in some ways. And what I'm trying to get at with that is that part of the utility is totally unknown. It's like, what do you do next? That opens up this idea, this possibility. It gives you new ways of thinking about poetry, for instance, and the relationship of poetry to language, so that what that paper combines is both an immediate political utility and then an indeterminate utility. Yeah. Where you intuit that this is going to have ramifications in so many different areas but you can't even put your fingers on them yet. I remember I was going to the doctor's surgery. I had a, you know, a mole cut out for my arm a couple of years ago and the doctor's there and he's like cutting away and he's just chatting to me because, you know, you're awake for an unpleasant procedure. <laughs> and I could, you know, and he's sort of like, he's a chatty sort and he's sort of like, oh, you know, what do you do for a living in here? I said, oh, I'm an academic, you know, I teach PhD students how to finish their PhD. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, my brother's an academic. Yeah, he's much smarter than me. And I'm like, hang on a minute, you're cutting my mole out. Like I'd say that you're pretty smart. And he said, oh, no, no, you don't understand what I mean by by smart. Like he's creative, you know. And and I thought to myself, you yeah, know, is the difference. Like he, he, see, he goes, he sees things that I – that I can't see. Like he sees possibilities in things that I can't see. So sometimes he'll give me a medical paper and I'll go, yeah, so what? And he'll go, don't you understand? It can be this, 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 you know. So I think I think there's that, yeah. I mean, I'm kind of curious. It's worth noting that academia, for the most part, has adapted to this boredom, or at least the reputation of it, Academics teach each other to speed read papers to take what they need from them as fast as possible and learn tricks like reading the abstract of a paper to figure out if it's relevant. Tricks like this help mitigate the boredom, though they cannot prevent it entirely. I am ruthless when I read an academic paper. One of the things about reading academic papers in any topic area is that there's lots and lots and lots and lots of them because of all those things that we said about pressures to publish. It means that you have to do, first of all, a sorting or winnowing process to even find a paper that's worth spending some time with. And so we provide each other apparatus to do this. So the idea of a paper abstract um, is an, is one apparatus that we provide to other readers to say whether they want to even spend the 40 minutes to an hour and a half which it takes to read a paper for me do I even want to invest that time? I'll read the abstract to see whether it's relevant. I'm often reading things in theoretical or philosophical fields 
and there it's infinitely slow. You know, that the, just the requirement, the demand of the writing is that you read it really slowly. Um, and some of those books take me five years to read, you know, so I use bookmarks a lot because often you can't bear it either, like to, you know, to read a book of Wittgenstein, you just can't do that in one go. You have to take four years. Academic writing is notoriously dull. I doubt either reputation or the structure will change anytime soon. But entry into academia is becoming more and more common nowadays, and as our science advances, knowledge will only become more important. We hope you enjoyed this tour into boredom, and will stick with us for the next episode in the series. The next episode is about that little voice inside your head that you hear when you read. Maybe you hear it when you write. You might be surprised to learn how useful that inner voice can be.